Hey, I'm Kevin. Thanks for listening to our message. We strive each week to bring you relevant, practical, biblical teaching that meets you where you are. To find out more about us or what's going on at the church, head on over to scog.com or download the app. Hope you enjoy the message. Hello. All right, turn in your Bibles uh, to Acts chapter 26. Put a finger there. Uh, 26 to 28. There's a fun stuff going on in the scripture in this moment. People are bitten, getting bit by snakes. Shipwrecks are happening. Crazy stuff's going on. Uh, so if you want an action adventure in the scripture, here we go. All right. But reading that and trying to apply it and go, what am I going to talk about on Sunday? I was like, I mean, snake bites and shipwrecks. Okay, cool. I don't know what to do with that, though. And so then uh, this week, uh, I was asked by Kayla to be one of the lesson, or the, one of the people that taught, it was great, going great with the word choices. One of the people who spoke at the lock-in on Friday, um, yeah, live streaming is awesome, so it'll be always out there in the history of mankind. I can't just deny that I lost my mind on a Sunday morning. Um, speaking at the lock-in. And they're covering identity at the lock-in and something that's so important to st- students. And I told the students a little uh, secret that all your parents aren't going to really be appreciative of. So as a pastor uh, of, for students for 10 years and then now as a senior pastor for eight, um, I, when I left student ministry, I thought, sweet, I'm not going to have to deal with some of these issues anymore. Just totally wrong. Kids are way easier Adults try to hide the issues that they have. It's the same issues. They just got better at hiding them, not admitting them. A sixth grader would be like, I don't know what's going on. I smell funny. And a parent's like, I, you know, an adult will say, well, there's nothing wrong with me. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. Inside, they're dying. And uh, you got to kind of crack that open. And be like, really? Are you really okay? Are you really okay? Yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. Then why are you crying? Uh, oh, oh, that, that, just, that just slipped out. Pay no attention to the tears that are coming out of my mouth. Um, I can't stand the, the sound of the lozenge hitting my teeth. I can't imagine what that sounds like coming out of a microphone. So apologize for that. Uh, and so kind of stepping into that and the, dealing with identity. And then I gave that talk on Friday night and I started thinking about it more and going back, what am I supposed to do? Like, how do I... I'm really struggling with figuring this out. And then I started looking through Paul and what he had going on here in, in 24, 25, 26, 27, uh, or in tw- through 28, was going, Paul's dealing with actually identity issues of himself. And what we've seen in Acts is this total transformation of who Paul is from about Acts chapter 7 on, because he's not in it earlier than that. But Acts chapter 7 and on, you're seeing this transformation of the identity of Paul, and it's absolutely amazing to look at. And so I was like, okay, okay, now, now Lord, I see what you're doing here. Uh, and looking at what, what God is showing us in this person of Paul, because I believe that you and I can identify with Paul in this moment. Um, we can identify with who he is, and maybe there's some things that Paul can offer as hope for us, especially if we deal with maybe control issues or not knowing who we are or finding security in, in, in who we are, even when our life is falling um, apart around us. 
Because if you look at Paul in these last couple chapters of Acts, he's the definition of his life is falling apart. The best thing about Paul's life at this moment is he's in jail. Think about that. The highlight of his day is when he's in a prison cell. That's a horrible, no good, terrible bad day. That's the best part of his day because that's the only time of his day he has security. Every other time, somebody's trying to throw a rock at his head. Somebody else is trying to kill him. He's on trial for something. He's shipwrecked. He's not eating. People are trying to throw him overboard like, you're weird. I don't know. And then he goes and tries to help and pick up some sticks. He gets bitten by a snake. And then people are looking at him. He's some sideshow circus project like, just watching him. When's he going to die? When's he going to die? He's not puffing up. When's he going to die? Right? You can imagine all like the junior high boys of the island, like, <laughs> watch him. His face is going to explode here in a second. Come on, come on, come on. Then we can poke him with sticks. I don't know. That just seems like something junior high boys would do in the island. Yeah. But, <laughs> but that's what's going on. So his days are going so bad that the most secure, the most safe he feels is when he's actually in a prison cell. Except when you read Acts, you don't hear Paul complaining about, oh, God doesn't love me anymore. You don't hear that. You don't hear why me. You don't even hear, and this is surprising to me, because if I was Paul, this is what I would be saying. God, you told me to do this. Why is it so hard? You don't hear that. Because if you remember a few chapters earlier, um, and if you don't remember, it's okay too, but a few chapters earlier, Paul's like, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. And everybody goes, no, don't do it. They're going to kill you. And Paul goes, I feel compelled. I feel like I don't even have a choice. I, I, I am directed by the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem. I don't really want to leave you, but I just, I feel this pull, this tug, this calling on my life that I've got to go there. And they're like, listen, man, you're going to die if you walk into Jerusalem. He's like, I, I know this is what I'm called to do. I'm called to be God's man in this moment and in this time. And so this, if Paul's got this anointing on his life to plant churches and to, to write uh, the amazing epistles and writes a, half the New Testament and all, all this amazing stuff that he does, but he's spending the, this time in his life in chains, shipwrecked, defending himself, being a sideshow and entertainment for different uh, governors and rulers of the land. That's basically what they, they bring him out to debate with him. Hey, I got a new friend that came into town. Let's debate with Paul today. TV is really bad. Commercials. And that's what he's brought out and done, done with. And instead of going, oh, I ruined my life. I never should have gone to Jerusalem. That's not what he's saying. Instead, there's something different happening in him. And it has to do with how he finds his identity. And to you and to me this morning, I think that can speak volumes <coughs> into the different situations we find ourselves in. Identity issues are tough. And like I teased earlier, I think sometimes they're blatant for middle schoolers, right? They're blatant. Kids are 
running around loud, doing silly things, dressing certain ways. And it's like all, those are screams for attention. If we're not careful, we as adults do the same stinking things. We just do it in different, more creative ways. <clears throat> Turn it right on for a sniffle. Apologize. Uh, when I find myself in trouble, when I find myself most usually the crankiest, when I find my marriage having problems, when I find I'm struggling with my children the most, when I find that I'm struggling with my job the most, if, if it's something on my end, it almost always comes back to not talent, not capability, not... At, not that I'm trying, you know, not trying. It comes back to an identity issue. It was always boils down into into that is I'm trying to find my identity in something I'm trying to produce, create instead of some than the person that I am. I try to find when I have issues, I, I, my self-worth comes from what I produce, what I create instead of who I am. When I get too focused on the results of what I'm doing instead of, of who I'm being, I cause all kinds of issues and problems. And if you look at your life, and you look at the issues that you've got going on, on you. Other people got their own issues. They got issues. But it's if I look at, at at marriage issues with me and Kelly, if we're if we're just not hitting the right, you know, those those weeks, those months, sometimes it's years where you're just like, what is, we're trying so hard, we're trying so hard, and the results aren't there. On my end, I'm not going to speak for Kelly. On my end, it's because my identity started to become on the results of I fixed it instead of who I am becoming. And that happens as a Christ follower, as a, as a, as a, some, with my career, with my kids, with everything. Like, I did all this stuff. I read this book. I did these things, kids. You should be perfect. Except they have their own brains and their own emotions and their own hormones and their own everything. It doesn't work that way, right? Because you can't control them. But the book said, I want results. Because if we're honest, everything in our lives, from our kids, as soon as they enter public school, I mean, even earlier than that, but it really happens when they hit public school, to our lives today, everything has to be measured. It is metrified, right? You've got to chart it, and it needs to go up and to the right because we're in America, right? And that's what it is. How many kids? I thought this was the dumbest thing in the history of mankind last year, that these kids were taking standardized tests, Right? It was the, the dumbest thing in the world. I was like, wait, what? What? You're taking standard? Nothing is standard. Like, they teach you this. Like, things, they have to be the norm. They got all the, the stuff for science. No, it's not normal. Just don't do it. Throw a party. Smile. Have fun. These kids need to be. But we, we, it's got to be. We got to have a baseline. We got to take a test because we got to know if we did our job or not. And Perry used to come in here. We'd go to lunch and he'd be whining about how his company. I hope he gets a chuckle out of me calling him a whiner. Um, 
He'd be whining about how his company just moved the metrics on him. He's like, I did fine. I met my goals. I did everything that I was supposed to do, except they just moved the bar. Like, they just, just moved it. That's not fair. You can't just move it. And they would do that. And some of us, that you work in maybe sales or, or whatever you do, it's like, hey, you just, you, just, you just moved it. And so now you feel like less of a person, less of a man, less of a, a, a productive member of society because I didn't measure up. And we do this to our kids all the time. They've got to, oh, they, they didn't measure up. They didn't measure up. They didn't measure up. We even do that with our height and their growth charts. Like, oh, they're behind. What are you supposed to do? Feed them more Wheaties? Like, there's nothing. It's just the way it is. That's who they are. Because we're so con- concerned with the results of what we can get instead of who we can be. Paul is a perfect example of someone who is so results-driven. As we meet him in, in uh, the stoning of Stephen, his drive, his goal in life, what he is doing is he's trying to be the best Jew possible. And the way in which he can quantify being the best Jew possible is to stamp out this Christian faith, is to persecute people and to oversee the killing of them. Because if I remove a Christian from the face of the planet, guess what? I have a quantifiable evidence that I was a good Jew today. And he tries to control his faith and he tries to do these things so much so that God has to smack him upside the head off of his donkey and say, stop it! Because his life was so entrenched in results-driven lifestyle. You may or may not fall into that category. He gets so results driven. And then you start to see the the change in Paul throughout the rest of Acts. Because then Paul becomes incredibly engaged in what can I do? What can I perform? How do I need to be about it? He goes through a a period of time of of studying and understanding and meeting with people and, and really getting the nuances of Christian faith. But then he goes and does the most quantifiable thing he can do. He goes and plants churches. I planted a church here. I planted a church here. How do I know I'm a good Christian? I planted three churches. Boom. How do I know I'm a good Christian? I planted another church. Because what is the ultimate Christian in Western American thought as a, as, as a kid growing up in church, a church kid? Alexa can answer this as another PK, right? You got you, you to raise your hand on Saturday night at the youth convention and say, I'm going to be a missionary. I had no, I don't speak another language. I don't want to go anywhere. Going across the street to my buddy's house is too far away from my house. But if I want to be, if I want to say I'm going to be an ultimate Christian, I got to be a missionary. It's because I can go do something. I can check it off the box. Some of you and people in this church may be called to be a missionary. Called. Actually, God has put a, a conviction on their hearts to do that. Others are doing like, oh, I'll raise my hand because I feel like I need to check some box off. That's not what God has created you to do. He created you to do something else. That's fine. It's quantifiable. I'm going to go. I'm going to do something. Sacrifice that year, or those two years, or those eight years, or whatever. We see it happen over and over and over again. Paul's doing this. He's he's going and planting churches, and I think there's a change happening in him. But this complete surrender of his own goals and his own timetable. He even writes down, "I really want to go to Spain." I really want to do this, but if God doesn't have me go in there, it's okay. His complete, he, he loses 
and chooses to lose so much control over his life. Now remember what I started the message with. He's, his best part of his day is when he's hanging out in a jail cell. That's the best part of his day. He becomes so empowered in these moments because instead of his life revolving about what he creates, what he produces, it's all about who he is. He shocks the rulers of the day, the people that, they, that he talks to with his answers. In fact, there's a line in there that says, well, if he wouldn't have appealed to Caesar, we would have let him go. Who he becomes. He goes from being this control freak. I have to have results on everything. Everything has to be quantifiable. Everything, everything, everything. everything. This guy is like, I don't know if I'm going to get food today. But what I'm going to do is be with Christ. And out of that will flow my identity. Folks, in our marriage and our parenting and even our work environment and even just being with yourself, when we have identity problems, when we have issues, when there's angst, when there's frustration, the more we identify ourselves with what we can produce and what we can create and what we can make and what we can chart, the more frustration, the more ugh, we're going to have in our lives. Instead, that's not who we're called to be. We're called to be people who can be present with God. And that's what identifies us as a follower of Christ, as a co-heir with him as a redeemed child of God. That's a drastically different thing. It's a countercultural idea to even think about here in America. And it's when we need to start interjecting into our thought processes. I'm not a number. I'm not the results. I know, like, being able to quantify stuff, it it gives you value. Like, it's that dopamine hit. Like, oh, look what we did. I could never be a farmer because I would take every plant that dies personally. Right? You have no control over that. No control over the rain. I'd be like, why rain? Oh, I'm a bad farmer. It's a, the worst drought in 50 years. It's my fault. I didn't have the biggest ear of corn in the history of mankind. For some reason, you know, running the baseball field, when we get rain outs, I take it personally. Like I can somehow just, it happens. It's not fun, but it happens. Coming up with our identity and seeing how we can grab a hold of this. How do we wrap our identity in Christ? Because I think we all can admit, all can acknowledge that, yeah, our identity issues are, our root to some of the problems that we have in our lives. But how do, what does it really mean to have identity in Christ? The first thing that you need to acknowledge is in Psalm 139, verse 14. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. I am, oh, sorry, fearfully and wonderfully made that each one of us is a creation of God Almighty. 
each one of us has thought about. Each one of us has intention behind it. Each one of us has value. Not because we were fearfully and wonderfully made when we were 25 and actually a fully functioning adult and we could produce something in society. No. We were fearfully and wonderfully made before we were even DNA strands. There's a difference in that. We're fearfully and wonderfully made when we're not even a thought yet. We're fearfully and wonderfully made before we can contribute anything to the world. God cares and loves us, has intention for us. So often we're like, ah, oh, I'm a failure. I didn't do this. I didn't do that. I didn't do this. You're fearfully and wonderfully made before you even thought you could do something or couldn't do something. At this root to know that God cares about you, God loves you, God has intention for you that you were premeditated and thought about. That's a foundational change instead of, I'm a screw up, I'm not worth anything. I don't, instead of the Eeyore tape that plays in our head. (sighs) Even with your messes. Even with your goofiness, even with your struggles, even with the, the roadblocks that are in your life, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Second thing, how we start to identify or get our identity in Christ is to realize and to know and to claim, I am enough to bring pleasure to the king of the universe. I am enough. You. Not the things you do. You are enough. That may need to be meditated about and thought about. You are enough. Luke 15, verse 4. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? Right? The good shepherd goes after the one pain in the rear sheep to go find it. He leaves the 99. That's sh- the, the sheep that he's going after is not particularly adding value to the shepherd's life at this moment. He probably doesn't want to go for that walk. He doesn't want to go chase after it. It's being hard-headed. It's wanting to do its own thing. Because there's a herd of sheep. He knows where he's supposed to be. I'm supposed to be there. But that was fun. There's something shiny over there. Sheep and humans are a lot alike. But I want to to go over there. I want to do this thing. I want to do that. And the sheep, I've, oh, I wish I, I wish I would have thought of this. There is a video, oh my gosh, there's a video of a sheep stuck in a drainage ditch, and it's like a, it's, it's stuck in there. And, and the owner comes out, and it's prying the sheep out, and it's pulling the sheep, and he's pulling the sheep. And this is you, and this is me, and how we deal with God. And he's prying it out, and he pulls that sheep out, and that sheep jumps up, looks around. I'm doing my best impersonation of a sheep right now. It looks around and starts bouncing around and falls straight back into that hole again. I just, doing, doing, have you seen Emily? You know what I'm talking about? It's hilarious because it just disappears in the dumb hole. And that shepherd 
goes back over that dumb sheep. Here we go again. That is Jesus in our lives all the time. And this is why shepherds hold sheep the way in which they do. They take them, they grab their feet, and they throw them on the shoulders. Because they ain't smart enough to have a leash on. They go back in the hole. He grabs their, he grabs their ankles, he puts them on the, on the shoulders. The sheep has no choice except to be carried by Jesus. It's not what the sheep is offering. It is, the sheep is adding absolutely no value to the shepherd, unless it's cold outside and it's a nice little, you know, whatever, scarf going on there, wool scarf literally uh, going on here. No, no value. But something also really cool happens in the sheep when, when they grab their ankles and they put them like this. Their, their bodies just kind of go. The goal of when being carried by Jesus is to relax. The response of being carried by Jesus is to relax. You know what I look like as a sheep on Jesus' shoulders? I'm fighting every way. I got to prove I'm good enough to be carried by you. Will you stop moving? No, no. I can, I can do something cool. I can do something for you, Jesus. I can do. I can, I can do. 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 Oh, too much cold medicine. Um, sorry. You guys are going, wee, I guess right now. Um, but that's how we are. We, we, no, 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 you can't carry me. Oh, I don't want to inconvenience you, Jesus. I want, I'm going to carry you. Because if, if I don't carry you, you're just going to fall back in the hole, and then i got to do this whole thing all over again. But no, 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 Jesus, I don't, I don't need to be carried. I'll walk back. I'll be a good boy now. I'll, I'll, do, I'll do my thing. You're going to fall. Pick you up. Put you on our shoulders, and I'll carry you. Our response is not to do more. It's to relax in the love of Jesus. And for you and for me this morning, I think sometimes we're so bent on proving that we deserve Jesus' love. We know where we've been. We know the hole that he just dug us out of. Guess what, guys? He knows the hole, and he chose to pull you out of it. He knows you're smelly. He knows you're stinky. He knows you got stuff all over you. He still chooses to throw you over his shoulder and carry you home. Our response is not to prove that we deserve to be carried. Our response needs to be to relax, to be present, and to enjoy the ride. So much of us is trying to prove to Jesus that we deserve to be carried by him. And it's just, we can't prove to the creator of the universe that we, we deserve it. He created us. We're fearfully and wonderfully made. He knows all that we're capable of. He knows all the mistakes that we're going to make. He knows it all. I am not defined by my past mistakes. You are defined by how you grow for them. You're not defined by your past mistakes. Everybody in here has got something. If we start airing dirty laundry, we're like, oh, ooh, oh. We could have a, you know, an ooh-ah fest of all the... I was this, and now I'm this. This person's got a divorce. This person has an abortion. This person's got uh, 
other things in their past. I killed a guy with a trident. You know, whatever's going on, all kinds of terrible, terrible things going on. If we were really honest with all the stuff that we've got in our closets, if we really just threw it out there, nobody defines somebody by that. Jesus definitely doesn't. You're not that. What you are is who you are now. Are you abiding in Christ? Are you present with him? As we enter the Christmas season, it's so easy to be so results-driven. Did I get the right smile? Did I make somebody happy? Did I check all the things off the list? Did I do all these things? That we get through Christmas and we never just sat and experienced his birthday. Our identity comes at Christmas time and how much can we actually accomplish? How much can we actually do? How much can we actually you know, pull off this year? Can we do something every single night of Advent and survive? It's not a competitive sport and you don't get a better place in heaven if you do 18 parties in Christmas. Are we with Christ in this moment, in this time? So what does that do? Because it kind of sounds like if I'm not defined by, by, by what I do, what, is, what does that look? Should I just, just sit on a, a log all day long or, and read my Bible? Like what, what does that actually mean? What, is it, what does that compel me to do? What that should do for our identity is reorient where we get our value from. We get our value for who we are in Christ. What that compels me to do is something different. Jesus doesn't require perfection. He requires your best effort. Jesus doesn't require perfection. He requires your best effort. How many of us have said no to to God because we knew we couldn't do something perfectly? I I got news for you. Nobody does anything perfectly the first time. I'm married a perfectionist. I know all about that stuff. I'm a little bit of one too. I just cover it up a little better than she does. But when you, everything has to be perfect, you just, you fall short on other things. And then you spend so much time trying to hide the fact that you fell short on something. Jesus doesn't require perfection. He requires your best effort. My parents, when I would get out of the swimming pool after a meet or off a, uh, out of a baseball game, they'd always ask me, did you leave it all in the pool? Did you leave it all in the field? Meaning, did you give it everything you had? Did you give it everything you had? Yep. All right. It's okay if you went 0 for 4. It's okay if you got last place. It's okay. Did you do everything you possibly could to do the best you could at this moment? Yep. If you could confidently say that, then we're good. And that mentality, it wasn't, oh, you went 0 for 4 because you, da, 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 you know, we got to deal with all these little nitpicky things because you weren't perfect. That's, that's not healthy. That's not what it is. That gets in your brain. You're like, ah. But that's where we are sometimes as followers of Christ. We come to church and, oh, I can't volunteer at this place. I couldn't be a part of the kids' ministry because I don't know the Bible backwards and forwards. And, uh, no, you'll, you'll learn it. Bite-sized chunks, it's okay. I couldn't be a youth volunteer. 
I don't have a psychology major in how to deal with sixth graders. It's okay. No one understands sixth graders, even the people with a psychology degree. It's all right. It's the armpit of the universe, as one of my favorite professors used to say. Jesus does not require perfection. He requires your best. You need to think about that and meditate on it. And if you can't see the difference between perfection and best, you got some identity issues going on in that. You got some performance-based stuff going on that you really got to nail down on. Because you may read that sentence and go, what's the difference? No, 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 no. Perfection and your best, they're not the same. Because if I cook, if I go home and make some cookies and Lucy goes home and makes some cookies and we do it together, they're going to taste a little different. Mine's going to have a little bit too much butter in it. I'm just going to go ahead and tell you that right now because that's why I like them. And Lucy's going to taste pretty chalky because she's going to put twice as much flour that need to be in there. But she's four and she did her best. And you know what? Her daddy's going to eat those cookies because he loves her. Jesus doesn't require your perfection. He requires your very best effort. And I think when we, we think of how we parent, how we live our lives, how we do anything, it doesn't have to be perfect. It comes out of, I'm just going to do my best right now. Maybe my best is not good enough. And my, maybe my best is messy. And maybe my best, it just doesn't measure up. It's okay. He's not interested in perfection. And we find Paul, the very best part of his day is when he's in a jail cell. This guy goes from trying to control everything in his life, trying to measure up, trying to plant the most amount of churches, trying to be super Jew, now trying to be super Christian. And now he's like, I'll talk to whoever I get to talk to today. They'll get my best, but I don't own my, I don't own my agenda. My itinerary is not my own. Whatever the jailer says I'm going to do today, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do my absolute best whenever any opportunity happens. What happens in our lives when we become flexible enough, open enough to say, you know what? I don't know what my opportunities are going to be today, but when they arrive, I'm going to be able to go. It's pinpointed to my best I possibly can in this moment. Because what keeps us from doing our actual best is that we try to be perfect in so many other ways. That in the things that really matter, we can't give anything to. Your value is not in what you produce. It is who you are and whose you are. Your value, the value that you bring, is not in what you produce. It is who you are. Your value is not in what you produce. It is who you are. And who are you? You are a child of God, fearfully and wonderfully made. Created for his pleasure. That is who you are. Not if you get A's on a test, not if you can hit a ball out of a baseball diamond. Not if you're the best salesperson in the history of mankind. Not if you can paint like Da Vinci or Michelangelo. Your value comes in not what you can produce, 
but who you are. For some of you this, this, this Christmas and you look at Christmas shopping lists <clears throat> or you get a little envy of what somebody else is buying their kids for Christmas. You can't afford to do that and you start to get down on yourself because I can't provide the Christmas I want. I can't do this. I can't do that. I can't go here. <clears throat> it's not what you produce. It's who you are how present you are, doing your best in this situation, in this time. For some of us, you just need to sit in that. Like intentionally slow down life to think about, am I valuing myself and my self-worth off what I produce? Whether that's in a classroom, we've got a lot of teachers in this, in this church, if that's a, how many widgets I make, whatever you, whatever you make, how many things I can knock off a, a checklist? Or is my value? Am I finding it in who Jesus says I am? And how I come in contact with him? And who he says I am? That has the opportunity to change your Christmas, but also to change your life. No matter if you're a teenager or 70 years old to drastically, radically change how you go through your days, how you view yourself, and how you view the people around you. He wants you, not what you produce. This time, in this moment, we're going to take communion. You're going to find on your seats, you have some uh, communion offered to you. The band's going to come up and lead us in a song. <laughs> Here at Short Church of God, we offer open communion. We offer open communion, which means if you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are more than welcome to take communion with us. There's no membership roles that need to be uh, done or a test or anything. It's just, if you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are welcome to take communion with us. As we take communion today, I think it's such a beautiful way of remembering that it's not what we've done that earns us grace. It is Jesus. It's all on him. It's what he sees us as. It's what he has redeemed us as. I didn't do anything to earn his body being broken for me, and I didn't do anything to earn his blood to be poured out and wash me clean but instead it's because he cares so much and that we were fearfully and wonderfully made and, and we, he has created us with intent that he goes through all this to have relationship with you and for me before we could add value to the world, before we could make anything, before we could create anything, before we could write anything, before we could do anything. He redeems us, not just our present but our past and our future as well. So when we take communion, we can think about our identities. This is who I am and this is who I get to become. All the other things in life that threaten to define me, threaten to make me feel a certain way, this is who I really am. A redeemed 
child of God. So as you take this morning, I want you to think about that. I want you to pray, Lord, have I been too caught up into what I produce and what I do? Can I just think and be and participate in you and know who I am in you? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for today. Thank you for this time and this moment. (laughs) Thank you for who you are and how you've created us. Lord, I ask you to move in our identity struggles. It doesn't matter our age. We all have them. Some of us have thought we, we beat our identity problems 20 years ago, and just this week they came raging back in our lives. Lord, would you ground us in you, that we could be present with you, find hope in you, In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us at church this week. And a special thanks to all those who continue to support our mission through your generosity. You too can support our mission to reach, grow, and serve our community by giving on the website or through the app. To make sure you never miss out on a message, be sure to subscribe. And don't forget to hit that share button to spread the word. Have a great week.